and a Ponzi scheme. And a Ponzi You're basically scheme. asking the question: Is crypto a Ponzi scheme? <laughs> I'm. I'm basically. Let's address I'm, that. I'm asking the what's the utility side that means it's not a Ponzi scheme. Really good. Let's go. Started during lockdown. Needed something to do. They looked at each other. They said, "Hey, I like talking to you." And so, from a garden shed in a box room in West London, they're discussing tech. It's the Small Time Bets podcast. Where are we, Jonathan? We're in the Waterloo New Brewdog, which is the largest ever brewdog uh, venue. It's got. Um, Duck pin bowling, I'm looking at. Yep, there's a Little slide, um, that, like a helter-skelter slide you can go down. There's an ice cream van for desserts. There's a coffee thing. It's grind, really cool. Grind coffee, so that's really good. But in-house. And um, there's also a secret speakeasy-style cocktail bar. We need to explore that later. And there's a, some podcasting studios. I'm going to grill you a little bit about food production. Yeah. And I don't know the answer to these. I'm just going to see what your thoughts are. So I touched this meeting climate change head on, pun intended. It's a weird situation at the moment where everyone's talking about a global food crisis, which it seems is looming. Inflation is affecting a lot of basic consumer goods that we take for granted. So, And then, weird enough, there's also... The situation where in the US and in the West generally there's an obesity crisis, so there's kind of a weird parallel of two sides of the world where we produce twice the calories that we need as a planet to keep everyone fully fed. But yeah, some people are getting really fat, some people are in absolute famine, there's a food crisis uh, looming, and at the same time everyone is worried about climate change and not just the effect that has on every other part of our life, but also the effect that has on agriculture. So I wanted to know your thoughts just on that. Yeah, and That's there's a lot of food waste as well. And food waste, yeah. Which, well, in some parts of the world. There's, like I said, there's a, there's a split, depending on which part of your world you look at, where there's lots of food waste, lots of obesity, lots in, of health problems related yeah. to that. And then on the other side, there's literally a person dying every minute in Nigeria mm. of famine. Mm. And it's kind of like the global north, uh, where, of course, with obesity, the paradox is that often it's the cheaper, more highly processed foods in one's diet that can lead to greater sure. obesity. So it's not like uh, we're saying that obesity is a sign of great plenty. Even in the affluent societies, obesity is correlated to lower socioeconomic situations. I, I guess it already hit home with the energy and food costs rising uh, with the Ukraine crisis, because we, we noticed that suddenly the breadbasket of Eastern Europe, where a lot of the grain is coming from, and a lot of the phosphate to make fertilizer, is Ukraine and Russia. And then when you take a lot of that supply out, it turns out that um, I think there's only three months' worth of supplies in terms of grain storage. So the whole of the world is running on three months' worth of spare capacity. If at any point grain just stops, we've got three months' worth in backlog. I never ever understood that stat, because surely it's annual 
and seasonal. So we would have at least the winter season of storage, which is more than three months. I don't know, maybe I'm just not close enough to it. But then again, before the Ukraine war, I didn't really realize how much grain and, and wheat, wheat, sunflower oil as well, that comes from Russia and Ukraine. So 60% of the global supply of sunflower oil comes from Russia and Ukraine. And sunflower oil is kind of the essential. But one of the things that I've started to think quite heavily about is, obviously there's a lot of things that we're trying to do to alleviate the long-term impacts of climate change. I still think intensive agriculture, meat production, food transportation, food waste are huge contributors to the climate crisis. But likewise, like we have a food crisis now, so I don't know how to balance them. And I was just thinking, what do you think about things like, you know, I'm just going to list a few things and you can react to them how you want to, but like domestic agricultural subsidies, um, the concept of more people going vegetarian or vegan or reducing meat consumption versus plant-based meat substitutes, the future of lab-grown meat and or precision fermentation to produce food and other methods, um, and even industrialized vertical greenhouses where they're you know, pumping in CO2 to try and almost make a factory farm rather than large land usage. Anyway, I'll stop there, but there's a whole load of concepts there, and I don't know what your thoughts on them are. Yeah, so as we head into a horrible winter in Europe with gas supplies down, gas prices really high, and a lot of people at risk of energy poverty, um, where they can't uh, really heat their homes and they have to choose between food that they don't need to cook versus, you know, they're, ch they're making choices about eating or heating and they're making choices about you know, not being able to afford the, the petrol, gasoline that they need to get to work to earn more money to pay their heating bills. That's the kind of situation that's even affecting kind of the wealthy countries of Europe. And in that context, it's a weird one because you look at the choices that we're facing about, all right, so farming is very water intensive and it feels topical because this summer has had the rainfall across the US and all of Europe and that's had a lot of knock-on effects. So we're going to be looking at more water shortages as the decade progresses. Then we've got everything we're trying to do about climate. At the same time, you know, it's very real, and it's a real global effort that's going to be required, but it doesn't feel as urgent to a lot of people as keeping the lights on and keeping the heating on. And then you talk about food production, and you know, we know that agriculture is one of the big contributors to methane, which is sulfur greenhouse gas. So if we were able to take a lot of meat out of the system of global industrial food production, we could really help reduce greenhouse gases. It almost feels like, and I, d I don't want to come across as, uh, you know, using the kind of Trump rhetoric, but it almost feels as if there's two conversations happening globally. One at Davos, where people think about really nice things that, you, you know, aspirational stuff around r really reducing greenhouse gases and making sure that hard to abate sectors are decarbonized as quickly as possible. And everything's about uh, environmental and social governance directives. And then the other conversation that's going on where people are really struggling to get by, 90% of the people are really struggling to get by. 
We've got fuel poverty, food poverty. Are you just talking about the West and Northern Hemisphere, or are you talking about like... I think globally, if you looked the at... globe. Yeah, globally, if you looked at what is the Maslow's hierarchy of needs thing that's most weighing on your mind right now, today, a lot of people would say, well, I'm a bit worried about what we're going to be doing in the winter. But, but when people talk about the global north, I think a lot of people, it's people like us who live in like Western democracies. That's really what they mean. They mean like Europe and North America. They don't mean China when they say the global north. That's kind of separate. They probably don't mean India, even though most of it actually fits, sits above the equator. Mm. What they mean is actually Europe and North America, which is why I'm thinking there's a, there's a, there's a weird... There's a weird situation where like the whole world is so connected. The climate is a connected system and that leads to, and, and climate change itself is impacting food production on a global scale, right? Whether it's lack of rainfall causing droughts or floods, you know, washing away people's livelihoods. Um, I think they're all quite related, but I'm getting really, I'm getting really confused because although, <laughs> although there's kind of political, not stalemate, it's an absence of any political action happening in the UK. That's a separate thing. But people, people ought to be thinking about what are the big ticket items for the future. And one of them, one of them is climate change. One of them is food production. And they're so interrelated. I just don't know how to break them down in a really easy way. You know, people like simple solutions to big problems. They often aren't any like is it that we should all go vegan is it that you should only buy local seasonal things from local local shops that are sourced in your country to stop the massive global trade and reliance on other countries providing that is it that um we should all eat a bit less or is it that we should be investing all our time and money and energy into you know uh, vertical industrial greenhouses and lab grown meat. I don't know. Yeah. Do you have a view? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, uh, part of me is thinking long term, you know, what the Netherlands have done when it comes to. Uh, Netherlands is the big, biggest producer of fruit and veg in Europe. And you're just like, huh? They're a tiny country with actually very small land mass. And yet they are producing so much fruit and veg because they've. They're just so much more advanced than everyone else. You know, what we produce in, uh, what we need big farmland for, they're doing in these really amazing, have you seen these like warehouses where the tomatoes kind of are grown at the top and then the vine grows down, like vining tomatoes, and then they, they almost like wheel up on a big wheel, wind up the vine. So as it's growing, they're plucking them and then they're just vining it up and it's all fed at the top through a very, like an agro not what it's called, hydroponic mix. So it's no soil, you know, they're, uh, and then they're pumping these um, essentially giant greenhouses with excess CO2 to beef up the tomatoes. Oh, cool. And then they're able to, you know, add 50% of yield by adding in CO2, reduce water consumption by like 90%, reduce the need for a lot of, you know, fertilizers, pesticides, all of that stuff, because it's all done industrially. It's not great for like, it's got nothing to do with soil health because you've got no soil, but in terms of feeding people, that's very efficient. 
you know, and I think things like that might be, um, they might be options we need to look at yeah, in the UK, in other countries where we're kind of addicted to subsidizing agriculture just to keep things, the status quo going. We should really be shifting the model completely to this kind of industrial futuristic food production. And then in other parts of the world where you've got precision fermentation, you could produce proteins and fats and oils and things that you need, like the raw ingredients of food at scale with waste products, with solar energy, for instance, as the main power, which you have in like the global south and equatorial regions in abundance, but you don't have a lot of food and we're running out of things like, um, you know, arable farming land. I just, I just think those are the sort of conversations we need to have. And at the moment, I don't think anyone's having that because everyone's panicking about inflation and like the very near term, what happens in winter. Longer term, it's going to be a very different story. Yeah, I've got a few reflections. Um, I think one of the things that people don't like is when the government tells them what they should and shouldn't be eating. But tastes change and prices drive tastes changing as well. Uh, it's been really surprising to me to see over the last five to ten years the rise of veganism, how fast it grew. Is it still growing? I feel like last year, maybe you know, two years, it peaked around the time of Game Changers on, on Netflix. Wow. Everyone did a month of being mm -hmm. vegan and then veganuary. But all the vegan food stocks or plant-based food stocks have all collapsed recently because demand is, I don't know, I thought demand had peaked. So, I mean, we're right to say that there's an environmental imperative. There is a moral imperative. And the look at industrial meat production. I think when people look back on this time, they will say, well, that, well, that was an absolute horror show. The slaughterhouses, the scale of production, the life uh, of the animals that was basically totally instrumentalized. And they would just quite push, through vegan, this, push through this system. You could just go free range. A yeah, ethical ways. I don't of... think yeah. that we can produce as much meat as we're currently consuming in a way that's consistent with being completely morally at peace with ourselves. Just my view. Um, I agree. So there's that imperative. And, you know, tastes will change and we'll get to a point where maybe we go back to eating meat just once a week like it was in the UK in the 1940s and 50s, where meat was a very special thing, which cost a lot of money, and you'd have it on a Sunday as part of your roast. That seems more consistent with what meat eating actually is, which is taking the life of another animal on the planet. Um, if that happens for, like, the, I guess, the billion people you're referring to, what about China and India? To, they make a what? a third of the planet population wise and everyone is shifting very quickly to a meat diet because it's become like you said like we've found ways of, of mass feeding and slaughtering animals um how do you feed that habit and that trend yeah so where i was going with this was to say that on the one hand you don't want governments to tell you what you can and can't eat but the kind of levers that we have is People's tastes shift and change, and part of that is for moral reasons. And actually, that feels like a good outcome 
It's also really great for the planet. And it will partly be driven by the increasing price of everything that meat production involves. So the phosphates, the fertilizers, and the massive amount of energy and water. And people will potentially shift towards the cheaper lab-grown alternatives for protein and for carbohydrates. When those become cheaper. Which are currently, yeah, currently those are quite expensive. They're all very expensive. But if we've learned anything from mass production of everything else, wouldn't you, wouldn't you basically apply you know, lean manufacturing to something like growing meat? I think we'll get it down to very, very cheap, efficient scales. Just, it just takes time, right? So is your vision of the future, you're in the matrix, you're eating a, a grey, <laughs> textureless gruel, and you just kind of have to imagine that it's a delicious steak. Um, what, am I Cypher? Or am I, like, which character? Um, no, I think, uh, I actually am quite keen on the idea of lab-grown lab meats. I think there's a lot we can do there. But I'm thinking, um, at the moment, that's kind of a niche fringe thing. Liking the idea of being able to make custom-grown, healthy meat alternatives really cheap, that, like, out of real meat, is actually that's kind of a very futuristic take on it. Whereas the basic thing right now is like rice or wheat or, you know, just really basic foods, food products, you know, vegetables that you can actually eat, growing them cheaply, efficiently at scale, locally as well, so you're not shipping everything everywhere, um, needs to happen. And I, I don't know, I mean, are you familiar with like the ABCD? Um, the alphabet. Yes. Are you familiar with um, the, uh, the four <laughs> the four companies that control around eighty to ninety percent of global food? Oh, tell me more. Trade. So, um, ABCD, which is ADM, uh, Bunge, B-U-N-G-E, Cargill, and Louis Dreyfus, basically control around eighty to ninety percent of food trade and production. And are well, I mean. That's the way the planet is run at the moment, but there is an increasing, there is an interesting argument of like, how much can you shift production to be more local and domestic, take it out of the like massive conglomerates that are producing it, fair enough, and investing a lot in it and shipping it all around the world and make it locally sourced, grown and delivered so that we're just cutting out the system that we have at the moment, which is generally growing it in like poorer parts of the world where they actually don't have enough food locally and then we're shipping it to western parts of the world where we just waste it there's a yeah. weird which and the, the cost of that is monoculture of production so yeah. much less biodiversity the cost of that is soil gets depleted in its richness and the benefit the huge upside of that is that food is incredibly cheap yeah so I mean, one of the things we haven't really spoken about is, and you, you touched on earlier, is massive subsidies of, for example, corn is incredibly cheap in the US because it's hugely subsidized. The point at which corn syrup is in everything, and it feels like everything, even building materials, just seem to have corn in them. <laughs> corn is everywhere because it's so cheap. <laughs> and decades of lobbying and subsidies will do that to an economy. And, and dairy, right? And even in the UK, in fact... I think everywhere dairy is subsidized. Dairy is a weird thing. Milk should not be cheaper than water. Like getting milk 
mm. where you're putting water in a cow, yeah. and then it's producing milk, and then you're pasteurizing it and shipping. It should not be cheaper than putting water out the ground. It, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, logically, from first principles, the things you're saying are correct. I actually like it as an outcome because <laughs> nutritionally, it's fantastic that you can go into McDonald's and it's possible to get milk for less than uh, a comparable bottle of water. But, I mean, you're familiar with like the whole government cheese situation. <laughs> was that the Reagan administration? Sorry, gov- government cheese. In, um, was that the Reagan administration in the US? Yes, Cheesegate. Cheesegate. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. You don't know government, government cheese? cheese? No. Government cheese? Massive subsidies of cheese in the US to kind of bolster and save their farming industry led to the government having to mass buy all the excess milk that was being produced because it was so heavily subsidized and there just wasn't enough demand for it. So they had the get, Got Milk adverts on oh, TV yeah. and mm-hmm. everyone was like, you got to have milk, you should have milk with everything, your cereal, your tea, your coffee, your whatever. And then the only way to store milk, because you can't really freeze it, you end up having to turn it into cheese. And so they built these massive caverns underground where the government would buy milk, turn it into cheese, and send it to people free. So cheese was almost like a subsidy for people on food stamps and people who um, won welfare. You just got like government cheese sent to you and then any excess, they store underground in these big uh, humidity uh, managed caverns and they still have loads. They still have loads of government cheese. It kind of tastes like cheap mild cheddar. This has been a fascinating... You didn't know about this? So no, this I is... don't even know. This is worse than a rabbit hole. It's a cheese hole. No, this is a... a, a Google it, government cheese. It yeah. is a, it's a crazy thing when you think about it because you're just like, that's the but problem. cheese doesn't of... even keep that law. Uh, it does. Like it does when you... Because it has the rind around it and it's like big vats and it's controlled in deep, deep caverns. Amazing. But then the UK, I think, has its own subsidies on farming and on dairy. And the whole thing is just mad, but... It's weirdly competitive in the sense that it's kind of a national security thing to make sure you've got food security domestically mm. of those type of things. So they subsidize it to make sure that it doesn't, market forces don't drive it overseas. But then the counter to that is you get these stupid situations where like milk's cheaper than water or you've got caverns full of cheese or you've got situations where the real beneficiaries are probably the ABCD corporations and then shareholders and actually the people getting marginalized is like everyone else who wants you know better quality farming with better investment not just subsidies but actually you know more futuristic farming and parts of the world who are starving who are being subjected to not just climate change but also famine there's a lot there i haven't unpacked it very well but like um just as a reflection and one of the things that um i've noticed particularly from a japanese standpoint is that food gets invested with a lot of meaning so food is yeah. obviously something we need just to keep going and survive, but food is about people coming together. It's a cultural event. Some of it is ceremonial and some of it's symbolic. And uh, I get how we could go lab grown and m- massive vats of the stuff for the staples, the, the carbohydrates, the, the quinoa, the rice, the grain, the buckwheat, what have you the substitutes for that or that themselves and really drive down the cost. I can also imagine that food over time, the symbolic food is going to be invested with a lot more meaning and we end up paying higher prices for that because it's grown locally. It comes with a story. The whole farm to table movement is all about 
know, tell me about the, the life of this chicken. You know, tell me about its personality. And taking individual items of produce, packaging them up as a beautiful thing, and then being more mindful about consuming them, I can't get away from the fact that eating meat means something. It's an aggressive act, and it means celebration and victory um, because of where we've come from. So we are animals who predate as apex predators. And when we're having a meat dish, eating cow feels like a win, and it feels like a celebration. But it's so bound up in everything that our culture is, which is uh, aggressive and disruptive. So getting to a place where we're doing less of that could be a good thing semiotically as well as for the environment and morally. Yeah, I agree. But I also would say that like most people, and especially the youngest generation, don't think of food in that way. They think food is born in a fridge or born in a supermarket, not grown as a, you know, a car that then has to live like 10 years and then eventually is slaughtered brutally and then chopped up and then packaged and shipped around the world. They don't think of it like that. It's a very, which is why it's, it's good, you know, I think for kids to do a bit of farming, even if it's in your garden, just growing things and understanding where that comes from is actually quite a good thing. We should move on. This is a very d deep topic, but hopefully, um, yes, has that answered any questions of mine? No, it's just given me more food for thought. Nice. I see what you did there. Jonathan, I think it's time for this week's Not a Sponsor. Go on, hit me with it. This week's Not a Sponsor is Brewdog Waterloo's podcasting venue, <laughs> where you can record podcasts and uh, even with video. And that it's unexpected to see in what is essentially a bar, uh, a professional podcasting studio. But here we are recording today next to the bowling. That's Brewdog Waterloo, the largest Brewdog venue so far. And that's this week's Not A Sponsor. Today also happens to be in Scotland, the day that uh, a group of cyclists and mountain bikers are joining some BrewDog employees to bike through acres of land, where, which is known as the Lost Forest, where BrewDog is planting an entire uh, 9,000 acre plus new forest from scratch. I need you to tell me a little bit about this week in crypto. So Jonathan, yes, it's time for this week in crypto on the markets. Um, so the big news in the markets was this week we had uh, Jackson Hole. So um, Fed good, chairman, skiing venue. Fed chairman Jerome Powell said that uh, it's time to keep at it. So he said it's time to keep at it twice. And then the markets fell. And by it, he means rates. Increase. So he used this expression twice, and it just means that the Fed is going to stay the course and probably continue to raise interest rates. Um, it's actually a reference to um, the 1970s chair, Volcker, um, chair, of, chair of the Fed in the 1970s, where the oh. Fed messed up. And Volcker's memoir was called Keeping at It. It was published a year before he passed away as a journalist. Oh, but in keeping at it, I mean, what, what, is, what is he saying? Well, the markets responded by dropping 3 to 4%. Uh, so I think it was 3.4% in the case of the S&P 500 and 3.9% um, for the NASDAQ composite. So 
essentially what Jerome Powell is saying is that um, they're going to stay the course. They're not going to ease up anytime soon. And the market's reacted by dropping 4%. Um, meanwhile, in crypto, uh, similar drop. It was actually going quite well until Friday. And then most of crypto has dropped, let's say, 5 to 7% um, over the last week. And that was this week in crypto and the markets. I thought. I thought, because I keep getting these alerts, do that Ethereum had dropped a lot more. Ethereum but is maybe down not. in the last uh, in the last day. It's down nearly eight percent. So just as a um, as a quick sense check, where are we on prices? Ethereum is one thousand five hundred dollars, and Bitcoin is leveling off at about twenty thousand US dollars. So crazy enough, since uh, the fourteenth of August, Ethereum's down twenty five percent. It's weird, like drops like that used to make people like, oh, we're down almost 30%. And actually, I think people are just like, it's all dead. No, I, that's a... I mean, you get punched drunk, but also it's tracking the stock market um, yeah. sort of scarily closely. Like, 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 an, op, like an option. So it's, it's like stock market leverage. The 4% um, drop that we saw on Friday in the stock market was the biggest since June. Really? Yeah. So since fourteenth uh, of August, Bitcoin is down twenty percent, nineteen percent. Hmm. Okay, that's uh, fair. Do you think inflation is going to keep going up? I want to. Well, the answer is yes, <laughs> because you can't raise the price of gas, which is uh, and oil, which is the the juice that drives the whole economy and brings all the food to us. And you, you can't then raise the price of all food because of that, also driven by fertilizer and phosphate prices, without driving massive inflation. And as we head into Northern Hemisphere winter, gas prices going up week on week and being very volatile as well, that is going to drive massive inflation. Do you really think that you can solve this inflation problem through central banking alone? Is the only lever we have. Do you have any other ideas? my question you get <laughs> like it's the only so the answer is it's the only lever we have really yeah there's no other levers what the, so so what do you think the causes of inflation are of bits okay there's many right um well it, it feels weird that there's like so many causes and the only lever is what they say at jackson hole when they're not skiing and they're like a weird doesn't it feel a bit weird? Like, there's no other problem in this world where that would be, like, a normal answer. It's like, <laughs> all these things contribute to climate change. The only answer is this one policy lever. We just have to keep... It's on full, but we're just going to leave it on full well, for um, a bit longer. <laughs> the trouble is that you're asking people who are holding a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. There isn't anything else that so, you can do if you're a government. I mean, but, I guess, but, I guess it's kind of weird, though, what isn't you it? could do got... is you could go and talk to your friends at OPEC, or you could go and negotiate somehow uh, about grain leaving the Black Sea, or pushing more gas through Nord Stream One, or you could accelerate the production of Nord Stream Two, or you could do the unthinkable and make some shocking concessions relating to Ukraine. But those are all. But that seems that everything at the moment. That we're seeing in inflation is Ukraine-related. We were seeing inflation before then. So 
Well, yes. I mean, but that's inflation that's driven by other things. Well, that, that's the thing, though, isn't it? Because if you think, and this is just my list, not an official list, but like COVID had its own supply chain shock. The whole, whole world was on pause. Then a lot of people, counter to what a lot, a lot of people on like crypto Twitter seem to think that during the pandemic, everyone was on like a mad spending spree when actually the majority of people just accumulated savings or paid off debt during COVID because and nothing else to do and they're getting and they had less outgoings because they're less to spend on um we have poor supply chain infrastructure which doesn't really help we have a reliance on china for manufacturing and now china is obviously a bottleneck and also politically a bit sensitive um we haven't been shifting to renewables or other forms of electrification for everything the ukraine war has obviously exacerbated that and then you've got in europe a reliance on russia but in the US, there's a whole load of preceding things that happened with like huge, if you go back to the Trump administration, massive, massive tax cuts pushed, which was all funded by deficit spending, right? Then you've got stimulus checks, again, putting more money into people's pockets during COVID. Then you've got further stimulus from Biden, further investment. I just wonder, like, if the only thing the whole world is waiting on is what Jerome Powell at the Fed says to solve the entire world's problems, then we're royally effed. There's like no, you know, there's got to be something better than that. Obviously, the solution in the UK is for the Prime Minister to go on holiday and for us to basically piss around for a few months. But for the rest of the world, um, I don't know. We should be doing something else. I guess the thing that Jerome never says is, I want to raise interest rates so that I can reduce the US's exposure on its national debt, having printed so much money. So, well, surely what they, what they really want to do, actually, no, they're fine. Because the really interesting thing about the US's national debt is because it's all denominated in dollars and the uh, Dixie is like at its all-time high right now, where the dollar is just basically crushing all of the currencies. They're kind of fine because people are having to buy dollars to repay back way more relative to their local currency than they had borrowed and people's reserve currency is still dollars and US bonds. So dollar hegemony is what they're really going for. And it's the thing that think they need to survive all of this. And inflation is kind of ideal because as you inflate things away, you're also kind of inflating away your national debt. And I mean that's thing else. So that's why so this all a makes kind sense. of weird From yeah, I mean, keep it going, but don't let it fall out of control. That's why we have the double speak. So when when you have Jackson Hole announcements, you know the subtext is all, oh, you know this is it very carefully worded, lots of that uh, sort of hidden messages as per the memoir. Um, but the thing that you can't say is, if we hold this course and we keep interest rates high for a while. That makes the U.S. stronger because it fritters away our national debt. Yeah, you definitely can't say that. Um, the markets think that the U.S. interest rate in the first half of next year is going to be between 3.75 and 4%. Base rate? Yeah, uh, the, well, the Fed's target rate. My dad used to talk about this a lot, about how high it was in the like 70s and if 80s. If you look at a chart of the U.K.'s interest rate, it's like between 7 and 14% has been for decades for three uh, decades that has been roughly where you expected the, so the I, interest of the bank of england's interest rate to be i suspect 
they what they okay now this is off the cuff but i think what people want and by people i mean like kind of political elites in 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 every government and central bank is they want inflation to hover around sort of like five five six percent people get comfortable with it they'd had they'd been under the two percent target for so long forgetting that actually what was inflating was education cost of healthcare, and you know assets and houses um and now they're like oh people are really shocked and you don't want to get in a cycle where people you know, it's like the wage price spiral of everyone thinking there's going to be more inflation. It just drives it like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If they can get everyone comfortable with a 5% rate of inflation, everyone is happy. They can keep printing money. So that was this week in crypto and the markets. That became a lot more depressing than I thought it would be. Can we move on to a crypto-centric topic? Talk to me. So Nick who is a regular listener to this podcast sent me through a an episode it's a, it's a series now that the ft is doing as a podcast series which is a skeptical take on crypto and thank you it's FT. quite i mean the ft has always been quite skeptical on crypto but Absolutely. it's well i guess well researched and quite nicely nuanced it's not just the typical kind of you know how like elizabeth warren just about stuff she has no idea about about crypto and it just sounds really just stupid um when this her, one is when her whipping boy was the banks i liked it a lot <laughs> but she was a lot closer to the banks right in terms of she understood the history of it all and with crypto it's just like she just really she's just copy paste or find replace just put the word crypto in to replace the banks and that hasn't really worked to her favor um but the, yeah the ft i think has some more nuanced takes they interview a few different people and they and they have a skeptical view on crypto, which is quite fair, to be honest, about it being more Ponzi-nomics, kind of a get-rich-quick get mentality, and that it's actually the lack of regulation in that space has really burned a lot of people, especially you think like Terra Luna and stuff, because we talked about um, stablecoins and algorithms, stablecoins, and Luna, like the week before it disappeared. And at that point, I was I was explaining to Nick that I I it woke me up because I had not known enough about it, even after doing research for the pod, I still didn't see the risks. Unfortunately, wasn't exposed, and you know I think on the pod we discussed like it wouldn't be something we would ever put a lot of exposure to because we didn't understand it, but that there was a viable need for different types of stable coins. And now I'm thinking, oh, that was a bullet dodged, but it made me think um, we should probably talk a bit about the utility of crypto and whether actually we can critically examine whether any of the stuff that we enjoy and use crypto for actually needs the underlying technology if it kind of is just branding and rhetoric and, and a ponzi scheme and a ponzi you're scheme. basically asking the question is crypto a ponzi scheme I'm, I'm basically Let's I'm, ask, I'm asking the what's the utility side that means it's not a Ponzi scheme. Really good. Let's go. So, I think we could split this into a few different areas because obviously, yeah, if you just lump everything in crypto into the same thing, it's hard. But if we start with maybe DeFi and like then look at NFTs, I think it'd be good. And then if we have time, you know, there's like online identity and governance and other things. But I think. Bitcoin and Ethereum, which is probably what we can only talk with confidence about. You know, can you do DeFi 
Can you do the stuff in DeFi just using traditional finance without any of the um, elements that Bitcoin and Ethereum bring? Right. Okay. I mean, you don't want to start bigger by saying, would it be useful to have a decentralized Turing complete computer that no one can shut down? Because you're asking a utility question. So in the Ponzi-nomics side of things, like if you can demonstrate that, that it way. might be a good idea to have a decentralized Turing complete computer that no one can shut down, that just does stuff if you feed it gas, then, and it is, you know, impossible to to rig is Im theoretically impossible to corrupt that you can't roll stuff back once it's done it where smart contracts are the ultimate objective arbiter and things just work and happen as they're supposed to be coded i feel like that's quite it, the thing is that's quite a loaded place to start from but let's let's try it so current internet and computing versus decentralized Turing complete computer like, what does that mean break it down as to why that is yeah, what so it is and why it's if you want something to be computed for you by computed uh, I think what we mean is there is some code so think of it like a robot and when you tell it to do something it does it currently if you want that to happen your options are you can go to Microsoft for their Azure cloud service go to Amazon for Amazon web services we can go to Google. Um, I challenge that. I can go on my laptop. Well, can, that's right in front of me. You can host your own server, yeah. but you won't be able to do that at scale if, what you're, if the robot you're trying to build is going to be, is going to have any chance of being a successful at scale business or service. Can't keep hosting things out of your garage. I think the better, not better, a different way of looking at this is about trust. So, what's the value of a trustless system for computing and for the internet? I think that's like the way I would look at Ethereum in particular. With um, Web2, everything I use has to, it involves me trusting certain people. I have to trust AWS or Google or Facebook or who's hosting the server or my government or whatever or the internet service provider, I have to trust all these different intermediaries to um, basically manage a service, whether that service is just the computer or the actual systems running on it and the applications, um, and even to manage my identity and my account and my money and everything that I do. And sometimes that's great. In fact, in many cases, it's, it's fine. It's kind of how we've run things up until now. I, I'm going to kind of paint a picture of the story and this might not be fully factually accurate. So stop me if I get it wrong, but I think the whole buildup of the internet kind of followed the same pattern with globalization where we ended up with giant companies spanning, you know, in multinationals essentially that instead of controlling resources of land and trade and raw materials controlled the infrastructure of the internet and have the power of nation states and the user base of a nation state and the, the money in some cases of a nation state. And that's kind of been fine through this period of friendly globalization, free movement. Everyone's happy. Everyone's a happy camper. We're all kind of growing together. 
we're now at a point where we're starting to get a bit skeptical about, you know, how much data Google has, how much they influence our behavior, um, how much control they should have over what we do, and um, whether people like Facebook uh, should really be the arbiters of conversation and influence our politics and even influence um, our friendship groups and things we do online, and whether they should actually be the people who control our data and our identities. And in the cases like, you know, Google, Facebook, and maybe even I can put Apple into that, like whether they should really be the controllers of our financial um, agency. And I feel like Ethereum, Bitcoin, crypto, crypto assets in general are a way of saying, oh, actually, you want a way of removing the trust we have to place in all those organizations because we're starting to get to a point where the happy medium of just putting everything in these big, friendly, big tech companies um, isn't something we're comfortable with. Then you need to move to a form of technology that puts you, the user, in control. And the only way is through a decentralized, Turing complete computer that is not hosted in one place, not owned by any one individual. And with you, you actually have the, the keys to access it and control it. And people who build stuff on it, it is built for everyone. Yeah. No matter what country you live in or what you might want to say or do, it's for everyone. And it's whether we're comfortable with that and whether there's utility in that. Because, yeah, you could do everything that you can do in that we talk about through Facebook, you know, through Google, through AWS, through, you know, government-run organizations. But I don't yeah, know Yeah, I mean, like I think valuable. the unfortunate truth is that for most people, most of the time, to skip to the end, we're going to find that uh, people prefer intermediaries to looking after their own keys. And people prefer intermediaries to uh, put out a brand um, that they can trust in and uh, make them feel warm and cuddly rather than... Um, rather than this, this, this other thing where a lot more of the responsibility and the legwork of jumping through the hoops to make, to be their own bank, for example, happens themselves. So, um, yeah, that, that might be where we end up, but yeah, I think, I think the story you're telling is the right one as to in principle, why is this thing supposed to exist? I guess, um, Bigger question. I don't think, given what we've talked about, that it's fair to call things like Bitcoin and Ethereum Ponzi's. Definitely there are other things that are Ponzi's in the whole space that are scams, but these aren't, they're not founded on the principle that people have to get in it for it to mean something. Like it actually has a utility. The bigger question is like, is that utility worth $200 billion or $400 billion? It's a network. I mean, I don't know what the market cap of um, Bitcoin is right now. Or Ethereum actually would be a better example. 183 billion. So is Ethereum as a global computing network that's fully trustless and decentralized? Is it worth 183 billion, or should or, it be 113 worth... in the case of Bitcoin? Yeah, and when compare that to something like I don't know. Let's take AWS as an example. Um, like over a trillion dollars, Amazon's market cap. Um, and I think the AWS portion is probably like 
close to half of that weight. So you've got you've got to ask the question of like, does this have that value? Because if it doesn't, we'll quickly find that the true real market value of a decentralized computer is that there's a hundred thousand people around the world who want to use it because it's decentralized and it has all the things we talked about. And actually the value of that is many million. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and maybe that's what it all boil down to in the long run. Or are we going to find a future where actually the true value of a global decentralized trustless computer that everyone can use is 20 trillion because it's literally the, the, the foundation of which everything else gets built on in a future version of a global internet, which doesn't rely on sovereign nation states and big tech giants. Um, who knows? I guess that's yeah. the question. I mean, asking market cap questions is quite good. I like that. I mean, the market cap of Amazon, you know, is basically three times that of Bitcoin right now. And Amazon is definitely more than three times better <laughs> than Bitcoin. It's more useful. It's doing a lot. Either, it's got all the different parts to it. It's got the AWS part. It's got the marketplace part. It's got fulfilled by It Amazon. doesn't use as much energy. <laughs> so, but then the problem with, with market cap, as uh, any watcher of Tesla will, will know, and Bed Bath & Beyond, is that... <laughs> It's not really value-based investing anymore. We're not there right now. It's all narratives. So, um, but it, yeah, but the, the narrative is key, right? Because crypto is, at the moment, purely speculative, right? But then a lot of assets have this speculative part. So Tesla's a good example, right? But I think you can start to think of it in terms of is that utility that it provides, which I would argue is a sound utility, but is it actually valuable? Because like VPNs do a fantastic thing of you know, giving you privacy online, securing your, your use of the internet. VPNs are like, what, four or $5 a month <laughs> for a user. They're not, you know, the, 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 they're not to the level of crypto where we're suddenly saying, okay, this piece of tech is way bigger, better more powerful than like a VPN provider. Mm. There's a kind of... Yeah, I've got a horrible feeling that the analogy here is that crypto is the telco utilities and the, um, car the wireless carriers, you know, the, like the sprints uh, of the noughties and early tens, uh, thinking to themselves, we're great because we're the future of uh, mobile, mobile or mobile at the time. And in fact, all the values in the customer relationship. So Bitcoin and Ethereum are just the dumb pipes. They're just the tubes. And they aren't really worth a market cap of very much. The real value comes to have a relationship with the end user, which might be where some of the Web2 giants continue to... Or just decentralized applications built on them, right? Mm. So that is DYDX, Uniswap, all these protocols that are built on, the, the banks built on Ethereum, essentially, or the apps built on Ethereum, are those worth more than Ethereum? There's been a, a big debate in the Ethereum space for a while. And um, yeah, we don't know our answer because it's too new. Now, has Tether pushed back against the US Treasury's um, sanction list, uh, also known as OFAC? Did you see that? I did not. What have they said? Um, so everyone else literally bent over backwards to go <laughs> above and beyond what, um, OFAC had asked for. Um, it's a USDC in particular, who's run by Circle, mm. one of the main and, and most reputable 
US dollar stable coins. I think it's fair to say they started sanctioning addresses and blacklisting certain addresses that had interacted with it, um, or, or not interacted with um, Tornado Cash, but were, were listed as, as wallets on the Tornado Cash um, side, so the, the pools that they were using. Um, Tether responded with a really interesting thing. I'm going to find. Oh, here we go. So Tether said that it hadn't blocked any secondary market addresses nor received any guidance from OFAC to freeze any addresses. Tether is not a US person, nor does it operate in the United States or on board US persons as customers. Uh, and that unilater- and it was interesting, they made a really good argument, which is that unilaterally freezing secondary market addresses could be highly disruptive and reckless. Um, and I think what they also had stated is that usually when they've complied with US regulators, they have been told not to randomly freeze addresses because it could in- impact investigations and it could trigger criminal activity to that you know they're being looked at and they'll behave differently um so it's quite interesting they kind of uh, they basically push back on all of this are they regarding themselves as a as a bahamas based entity because of Del- deltec bank and the bahamas bank capital union are they operating as if- and i don't i don't think they are they're basically saying like we're outside of us jurisdiction in that sense they've said that they uh, work closely with law enforcement worldwide to assist in investigations, including freezing ad- addresses. Um, but they said, when Tether receives an applicable legitimate request from a verified law enforcement agent to freeze a privately held wallet, the company complies with the fees. Um, so far, OFAC has not indicated that a stablecoin issue is expected to freeze secondary market addresses that are published on OFAC's SDN list or that are operated by persons and entities that have, sanctioned, that have been sanctioned by OFAC. Further, no U.S. law enforcement agency or regulator has made such a request despite our near-daily contact with the U.S. law enforcement whose requests always provide precise details. But isn't that exactly what they were requested to do? But on the SDN list, by adding um, Tornado Cash and the 40 addresses that Tornado Cash employs onto the SDN list, isn't that exactly what Tether was required to do? Was to block those addresses? They're, They're saying that they've not been told that that's what they're meant to do and that they've asked and they've received no details. So, so it's interesting. But it's interesting. This is their claim. So unilaterally freezing secondary market addresses could be highly disruptive and reckless. Even if Tether recognizes suspicious activities on such an address, completing a freeze without the verified instruction of law enforcement and other government agencies might interfere with ongoing and sophisticated law enforcement investigations. In fact, in our dealings with law enforcement, we are sometimes made aware of addresses potentially related to crime, and are specifically instructed not to freeze those addresses without the explicit request from the law enforcement, as this could alert suspects of the law enforcement investigation, cause liquidations or abandonment of funds, and jeopardize further connections that might have been established. Sure. It's, it's like a really... It's interesting, isn't it? It's almost as if they're saying, okay, Treasury, but you know that this isn't actually how it's done. Right. Yeah. Like, you don't just basically put out some random spontaneous guidance on a Monday and everyone just interpret to their own delights what they do with it and who they should censor and block and whatever. They've actually... That's interesting. For Tether, this is actually pretty interesting. Yeah, a great press release. Yes. It is time for This Week in NFTs. (laughs) This Week in NFTs. So Pudgy Penguin's been busy. I actually haven't followed this story. So what has Pudgy Penguin been doing in the NFT space? this is a, it's a funny story, and you don't own a pudgy penguin, I don't own a pudgy penguin. They look like 
like any of these NFT projects, like little cute animals. So it's loads of penguins. It was a really big project. They're, the, they're supported by um, 10KTF. Wagmi-san crafts things for pudgy penguins. And they were really big in 2021. Not quite as big as Board Ape Yacht Club, but I think the, their prices were going up to like four or five ETH at some point, which is a lot. Um, there's 8,888. And they had this situation where like the founders suddenly withdrew loads of money from the project fund. Huh. And everyone went, oh my God, it's a rug pull. And then the founders were like, no, 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 no. It's, it's not that it's a rug pull. It's, we're just kind of bored. Like we didn't, this was a, this was, we set up a project. We thought it'd be fun. This isn't what I want my life to be. <laughs> I think the, the founders, I don't know whether you think it's fair or not, but they're like, they're in their like twenties and thirties. NFT movement's happening. They get this project going. It's these cute little penguins uh, and it becomes massive. And suddenly their responsibility goes through the roof and they're like, I kind of wanted to do other stuff with my life. Right. So they don't just disappear and go anonymous. They try and sell it. And one of the people from the community offers the money to, to essentially buy the IP, buy the, buy the project off them, right? So even though the, the founders, they have, they have past behavior with other, other projects and things. So it's not like they weren't known. They were known. People wanted to maintain the project. Someone else wanted to buy it. Um, and so they bought it for, I think, a, uh, 750 ETH. That, yeah, yeah. So, so two and a half million dollars, basically. Luca Schnitzler. Yeah. So he bought it for two and a half million dollars. <laughs> and then the community has kind of had this big comeback story where it turns out, and this is why I wanted to bring it up, the power of community and activity and belief in a sense of, of, being a penguin um, has kind of brought them back into this mainstream where they now are really way more close knit than they were before. They've kind of been the the, the energy's been reignited behind a, a new group of people who are managing and leading it and managing the fund and dis determining the future of this weird project. Yeah, um, on a Monday, the rarest pudgy penguin. Well, that's looking in the news. Sold for sold for four hundred ETH. Just a penguin with a green background, but I don't know why that makes it rare. But it's um, it's kind of crazy because just under six hundred fifty thousand dollars. It's an interesting story, right? Of of what NFTs actually it's looking in a different are. direction to the other penguins. Is that why? Yeah, it's my spread. Oh, the only one looking at yeah. Ah, okay. That's is that an accident? Who knows? But it made me think because NFTs by themselves can. People don't understand them, and it's still difficult to really place a value on a kind of a picture. But when you think of it as part of a community, this is a really interesting example where it turns out community is the only thing that's valuable, and everyone getting behind this new leadership and the new movement of these little penguins um, seems to have uh, given it some redemption. Yeah. Um, can we revisit the metaverse stuff? Yes, and how how more fitting than because a week ago last Friday we didn't talk about it, but um, Mark Zuckerberg did that tweet of himself in front of the Horizon Worlds because the Horizon Worlds now available in like, France and Spain. So he did a, a really bad uh, sort of in metaverse selfie, as it were, where it's his avatar in front of a crude 
small model of the Eiffel Tower and the Sagrada Familia from Barcelona uh, to, to, you know, to mark the fact that it's launching. And in that, his avatar is so bad, uh, the eyes in particular, it's just so crude. It's, it's, it's worse than Second Life. It's embarrassing. It's like very hack. And uh, he got a lot of slack. He got a lot of That's why we don't do that. Hard to see the yeah. angle. It's so funny. But, um, and then he later apologized, saying, sorry, I did that quite quickly. And um, rushed selfies. They're terrible. We're yeah. really working on you're blinking in I- improving the, the graphics in Horizon World. It's going to get better. Also, announcement. Graphics is the problem. There's <laughs> <laughs> an announcement. Just yesterday, or maybe today, I think, um, that the, there's been a teasered next version of the Oculus Rift, um, and that is expected to come out. Um, uh, he said that it's going to have not just eye tracking, but also facial expression tracking. That to, will not help him. To create a kind of social presence. And he says that what's really the unlock here is that it, it makes you genuinely feel like you're in the room with the person in a way that having a Zoom conversation can't. So um, Facebook's meta doubling down on the metaverse, very, you know, very relevant that we're asking what actually is the metaverse right now. Someone, someone responded to his tweet saying, um, with, with it in caption saying, in Fortnite, you can be Goku with a shotgun. <laughs> um, oh, I, and I then someone else. Huh? I, I don't get the reference. I'm going to pretend to laugh. Um, Oh, it's in, it's in, you can, the skins you can have. Yeah. Like where you can not be, well, and this is way better, but, um, and someone else, uh, a screenshot of first look at, uh, Horizons World at launch, first look at Yuga Labs meta, um, other side, uh, metaverse with like four and a half thousand people running around in that thing. And it's, um, which is, yeah, kind of, I'm actually blown away by how crap it is. Maybe the selfie doesn't do it justice. I've not been in Horizon. Well, I don't think that that, um, clip art version of Eiffel Tower is meant to be representative of all of France when you're in Horizon Worlds. Like it's just a model that they put in that they got from the internet or something. Uh, <laughs> like I've been in, I've used my Oculus and I've been in um, my VR chat and there's been better stuff than that. The clipping at the bottom really... of the model is wrong as well. It's just a badly assembled 3D model. But, may, but maybe now's a good time to like, let's just revisit it. Because a while ago, it seems like forever ago, we spoke about Metaverse in terms of what it is, what it is, and our own definitions of it. Has that changed? Has yours changed? We've got a clearer picture now of what it is, could be, and should be. The Eiffel Tower with some sort of like... So first of all, let's say what the Metaverse isn't. The, the Metaverse is not one monolithic virtual world. Even for Facebook, it's multiple metaverses uh, that you can be in multiple virtual worlds what should the metaverse be and why does web 3 and metaverse always happen in the same breath it it should be a thing where you get to have property Mm -hmm. and now you have a stake because the thing that you own which can only exist digitally which is a web 3 object through nfts that thing can travel from one virtual world to another and in all circumstances, it continues to be your property. Yeah. And that thing might be money, currency tokens, recognition, honor, status, or it might be an object, a sword, a hat, some clothes, your avatar itself. And that 
is all the metaverses. That's kind of literally all it is right now because no one else knows what the other stuff is that's going to come up around the sides of that. But if you can imagine that's the scaffolding, that's kind of all we know it is. And then around that, cultural and social things will happen and value will accrue. It's, it's digital property. Yeah, but, but the core. thing is about digital property is that it's meaningless because you can only ever see it on screens. And the idea is that if there is a better interface that might involve a headset or it might involve using your screen more, um, then the thing that at the moment just looks like a terrible JPEG of a mutated monkey or ape, or at the moment just looks like a JPEG of some very blocky sneakers, trainers, shoes. That JPEG will stop being just a flat JPEG. It will come to life and it will have a shared community of meaning because things only have value and meaningfulness when they exist within social form of exchange. And the metaverse is a place where flat, lame 2D images and JPEGs turn into 3D and get given shared meanings. I'm going to take this full circle and go back to our utility question because I think the only way you can do digital property, share digital property across an open metaverse is through a trustless, true and complete internet computer. I don't think you can do it if you're Facebook, Google, anyone else because... You could do it through a JV. Mm. Do it through a commercial partnership. A partnership with everyone on the planet? No, you just have um, selective agreements with other companies who have licensed you their IP for an object. So the Facebook Bandai partnership would involve your IP of Power Rangers being able to be used within Horizon Worlds. Done. Easy. And then you can API into other services. There is a way of doing it. It's just it takes a long time to set up the commercial agreements and nobody ever owns that thing. So, but then you never have property, a digital property. That's the thing. I don't think you can have digital property if you don't own it. It's kind of the nature of how property works, right? It's not. Yeah. You'd be perpetually a digital leaser, lesser. Right. Like, um, I don't know. It feels like you're a tenant. You're not a freeholder, you're a leaseholder. Yeah, it's the difference between me going to a bookstore and me buying a book and me downloading a Kindle book. Yeah, like, or, or going to I, what's known as a library, Jonathan. That's how you extend that analogy. No, because did, I didn't realise, but digital libraries um, are going through a problem at the moment where public libraries have the public physical book. They buy the book, they can lend it out a million times. The digital public libraries also have a digital interface where you can borrow books but they they don't work in the same way they have licensing fees they never own the digital thing to then ah. do it they pay huge fees on it and it's really hard for them to to um to essentially achieve the whole we're a public library you can borrow books from us meanwhile um what are they called uh the internet um internet archive is just scraping real physical books putting it on the internet and going ta-da you can just borrow this instead. And people are going, uh, what? You haven't licensed that for me. There's a big, like, there's a thing about digital stuff where it's really unclear, like, who owns what and whether you have this because you have the file, but then you can copy the file. And I think this is the difference. Mm. You get into the metaverse and you say, actually, I actually, I really own this book. 
There's only one of it. Or maybe there's a hundred copies of it. But I own one of the hundred copies. And I can lend it to you. And I lend it to you. You borrow it and it comes out of my wallet and it goes into your wallet. And you have to pay me back because after a hundred days, it automatically will come back anyway. And you'll be charged. Or if you don't, you'll be charged late for you. Whatever. You can have that smart contract done in a digital setting. And sure, I can like take pictures of it and put those on the thing, but it's not the same as having the book. You know what I mean? There's yeah. a kind of uniqueness. digital property. Uniqueness, authenticity, ownership, property being restored to a digital universe hmm. where classically, as Andy Warhol po- pointed out, you know, mass production made everything no longer unique and authentic. Um, but we're able, and digital made that even worse because it was totally oh, frictionless. Yeah. And endlessly reproducible, perfectly, with no errors and flaws. So, yes, restoring uniqueness to a world of perfect copies. And I think the metaverse now, I would split it into two conversations. One is your point, which is, I think, the better point around, like, um, property, digital property. The other is, um, how do you render a space where you can engage with whatever it is that you have, your digital property. And that's the bit where Horizon World and the other side and Decentraland and the Sandbox and there's this, what is it? The World Wide Web, two Bs, you know, the one, me bits have just integrated with it. There's a whole load of like the 2D, looks like Animal Crossing. Um, there's loads of these different like game type spaces where you can bring your different objects into them and they'll look different in each different world. I feel like that's a different thing, but it's like the layer on top of the actual metaverse, which is your property bit. And then it's about graphics and um, visual representations and, and user concurrency, you know? Yeah. Do you have to actually believe in that second one? Because a lot of people look at VR, look at screen time, look at, you know, what is the trend? The secular trend in screen time is we started with telegrams, then went to radio, then went to TV, then went to color TV, then went to bigger screens, then went to mobile screens, desktop screens, and now just screens and screens and screens and screens. And they're telling us to now put the screens uh, right up to your eyeballs eyeballs. (laughs) and your brain. (laughs) Stop having to, stop being able to move around for most of the time, unless it's AR, but most of the time, literally can't even move around now because otherwise you just bump into stuff, um, unless you're on a multi-directional treadmill. So. That has been the trend. Well, that has been the trend, but a lot of people would say, no, it's horrible. I'm not doing that. And neither is anyone else going to do that realistically, unless the world becomes a dystopian apocalyptosphere. We aren't going to be doing that, that we have reached a natural threshold in the amount of screen time it's possible for a person to have and still be healthy and emotionally balanced and mentally healthy. Is, is the pushback? So, I don't think that's ever going to stop people. We've, really, we've reached, a, reached a threshold of how many calories we actually need to survive, and yet we still get really fat and unhealthy. Like, there's my not... point being, can you um, have Metaverse Layer 1 without having to believe in the environment that you create to bring that stuff to life? And Metaverse Layer 1, according to you, is just... Like the foundational idea of property being yours, digital property but, being but yours. But Metaver- Metaverse Layer 2, um, <laughs> as you put it, is um, like it's not, a, there's many incarnations of it. So to take 10 KTF as an example, you don't barely need to look at screen. You basically enter these missions with your avatars and your things that you like dress up to do certain stuff. And there's engagement through 
chats on Discord or clicking on Twitter to see the, the cool story that's evolving. And your participation is pretty much a couple minutes, isn't it? Every week, really, mm. if you're really thinking about yeah. it. You have to pay attention to the story, but you're not like just glued to a screen all the time. Versus the other side, which sounds like it's going to be more like Fortnite, where you're, you know, Fortnite has 3 million concurrent users at any one time, globally. Unthinkable. Yeah, but they're all in like different 100-person fight-to-the-finish yeah. games, right? Or they're yeah. at a concert where there's a few thousand. Um, the other side with Improbable are trying to get to the point where they have 10,000 plus concurrent users in any one of the 100,000, no, 200,000 other side plots, right? So they've really, the thinking scale, um, those are going to be more immersive. But I don't think we're at a point where um, people are, are shying away from that type of screen time. I think that screen time is becoming maybe more normalized and then the screen time you need to get away from is kind of the i'm staring at my phone to like which is perpetual to like i'm spending an hour i'm going to this weird world and i'm I'm literally plugging in yes doing all my i'm stuff, in an immersive experience I'm, rather than my entire world is i'm stuck looking at a very small yeah. rectangle my nervousness is actually ar is probably going to be the thing that we get to where the entire your entire world is going to be through a screen that's i think the inevitable 10-year future that we're getting towards. But um, these type of metaverse ones, I can imagine, uh, yeah, the base layer, the layer zero or layer one, whatever you want to call it, is, is digital property. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty wedded to that now. I feel like that's the direction that everyone needs to start getting behind and stop thinking about VR, AR, all these <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg selfies. Like these are just distractions away from the real thing, which is, what do we do now that we have the ability to make digital property? Very good. Jonathan, um, it's been refreshing to be in the same room as you. Um, Not as refreshing as this side of the aircon. <laughs> I'm cold over here, so I don't know how you've been able to bear it. <laughs> um, do you fancy some lunch? Let's get, let's get half price lunch. Um, it's half price until next Sunday. Just, just a fact. I think we... you have to book. Doing this again next week here. So, if anyone would like to come to Waterloo <laughs> and stand and just there, stay here, in. you're very welcome to. Um, um, and um, it'll be great to see you. And uh, thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Doug. Excellent pod. Started during lockdown, needed something to do. They looked at each other, they said, Hey, I like talking to you. And so, from a garden shed in a box room in West London.